Legend tells of a city hidden in the jungle of the Andes Mountains, made of gold and filled with treasures beyond imagination. Its name is El Dorado. Explorers have in vain tried to find El Dorado for centuries, dating back to the first Europeans who arrived in Central and South America in the 1500s. These explorers had long heard the stories the Native Americans told about the legend of this golden city, and the search for El Dorado led them to cut a bloody swath through the South American landscape. The more they searched, the more stories they heard, and the more enamored they became with the possibility of the city made of gold. Men risked their lives in the quest for this treasure. They risked the lives of their men. Some even risked the lives of those they loved most. Thus far, all these searches have been in vain. Hi, I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Welcome to Gone on the Parcast Network. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke Colony, which today's episode will brush against, to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to Parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can find previous episodes as well as Parcast's other podcasts on your favorite podcast directory. Today we will be looking into the lost city of El Dorado, the fabled city of gold that inspired numerous expeditions into the South American jungle and has yet to be found. The mystery of El Dorado comes down to two possibilities. Either it exists or it doesn't. If it does exist, why has it never been found? And if it doesn't, what could have spurred European explorers to devote decades of their lives to finding it? In today's episode, we're going to look at the history of man's search for El Dorado, from the early Spanish conquistadors to the decades-long mission of Sir Walter Raleigh. And we're going to look into the possible theories as to why this fabled city has eluded adventurers for so long. Theory 1. El Dorado did exist, but it was destroyed centuries before Europeans arrived in South America. Theory 2. El Dorado was not a place at all. It was a man, specifically a king. And Theory 3. El Dorado never existed, and the entire myth stems from the greed of explorers and a misunderstanding of the native language. The legends of El Dorado date back to the beginning of the 16th century, shortly after Europeans first arrived in the Americas. These tales describe El Dorado as a place so abundant with treasure that the city itself is made of gold. It sits on a great lake, surrounded by untouched mountains veined with precious metals, just waiting to be mined. Beginning in the late 1400s, European nations sent expeditions to the New World, primarily South America, in search of goods and gold. 
This first century or so of expeditions to the Americas featured a number of disconnected searches for treasure. Spain in particular found immense quantities of gold, silver, and jewels in Central and South America. These stolen riches overflowed Spain's treasury and made them the envy of Europe. As the conquistadors plundered the Aztecs, Inca, and other civilizations of Central and South America, they heard tales of even greater riches in a city the natives called El Dorado. All of this began in 1492, when Christopher Columbus arrived at modern-day Hispaniola. He immediately began killing and enslaving the native Taino people. Even worse, Columbus and his party exposed the natives to European diseases such as smallpox. The Taino had never encountered these diseases before, and thus they had no immunity. Their people were decimated. It was these diseases more than anything else that cleared Central and South America of resisting natives and set the stage for the Spanish conquest of the New World. In 1520, Hernán Cortés brought a group of conquistadors to conquer the great Aztec empire in what is now modern-day Mexico. The Aztecs were mighty warriors and had successfully fended off Spanish attacks in the past. But as their people were slowly wiped out by disease, their forces became weak enough for Cortés to finally conquer. The Spanish colonized the Aztecs and shipped the empire's gold back to Spain. The conquistadors then turned their sights south. The Incan Empire was the largest empire in the world at this time, stretching down the Pacific side of South America from Colombia to Chile. The Aztec conquest had only made the Spanish all the more greedy for native gold. And so, they began to plan for the next wave of raids. In 1532, Francisco Pizarro arrived in Peru with a war band intent on conquering the Inca. His force was small, but by this point, the Inca, like the Aztecs, had been nearly wiped out by disease. As Cortes had done with the Aztecs, Pizarro conquered the vast empire, looted their gold and treasure, and sent it back to Spain. The amount of treasure taken from the Aztecs and Inca was massive, but there were rumors of an even richer empire to be conquered and looted, the golden city on a lake, El Dorado. The conquistadors even knew where the city was, sort of. In modern-day Colombia, deep in the Andes Mountains, they just had to find it. During the same period in Europe, King Charles I of Spain had conceded parts of the Venezuelan province to a powerful German banking family, the Welsers. One of the Welsers' main goals was to find El Dorado, and they commissioned a number of privateers to carry out their search. Ambrosius Ehinger, whom the Welsers had appointed as the first governor of their region in modern-day Venezuela, made the first expedition on behalf of the family. He risked life and limb on the treacherous journey inland, but he found nothing, no sign of El Dorado. Beginning in 1531, Nikolaus Fiedermann and Georg von Speyer, also commissioned by the Welsers, undertook regular expeditions in search of El Dorado. They searched for eight years and found gold artifacts and artwork, but never the place itself. In 1531, Diego de Ordaz, a veteran of Cortes's campaign against the Aztecs and governor of Spanish-colonized Venezuela, made the first expedition up the Orinoco River. 
He went beyond the Meta River, but had to turn back when he hit the rapids at Atores. Then, shortly after Ordaz returned, he died unexpectedly. There was strong suspicion he was poisoned, but no proof. The dangers of treasure hunting weren't just found on the quests. Clearly. Ordaz's successor, Geronimo de Ortal, continued the mission of exploring the Meta River for several years. In 1535, Ortal sent his captain, Alonso de Herrera, inland, up the Uyapari River. But Herrera was killed on this trip by indigenous people. Also in 1535, Spanish conquistador Sebastian de Belalcazar sent captains Añasco and Ampudia on a mission to find the riches of El Dorado. They failed and returned empty-handed. By now, the leaders in Europe were beginning to notice a trend. Everyone sent to find El Dorado either came back empty-handed or died in the process. It was starting to seem like the city was just a myth, and that the colonizers' efforts would be better spent elsewhere. But then... In 1537, Spanish conquistador Gonzalo Jimenez de Quesada was on a mission with an army of 800 to find a land route from the Atlantic side of modern-day Colombia to the western coast of the continent in modern-day Peru. On his way, he heard the stories of El Dorado and changed his mission. Gonzalo led his men deep into the Andes. He had hoped that his larger force would give him a greater chance of finding the city than the smaller expeditions of the previous few decades. Gonzalo and his men faced wilderness and the unknown and lost many men. But this sacrifice paid off because Gonzalo found something amazing, something that would change history and bring him one step closer to El Dorado. Coming up... We'll discuss just what that was and how it led generations of explorers on a fool's errand. Now back to the story. In 1537, Gonzalo Jimenez de Quesada and his men ventured deep into the interior of South America, where no European had been before, in search of the fabled city of El Dorado. It was a life-threatening adventure, but it seemed to all be worth it when Gonzalo and his men made contact with the Muisca people in the western Cordillera Mountains. Gonzalo's men saw the Muisca's vast array of gold items and their unique gold working techniques. The Muisca were able to make objects from gold in a way the Europeans had never seen before. To start, the Muisca created an alloy with gold, copper, and silver. But more importantly, they invented a technique to craft objects using a mold of wax. Once the gold or gold alloy was set in the mold, they would use fire to melt the wax mold, leaving only the crafted object. European explorers at this time made note of their amazement at the gold and jewelry of the Moisca. They said that the chiefs had crowns comparable to European crown jewels, as well as gold vessels, litters, and coffins. And there were stories from the natives of the Muisca dumping heaps of jewels into the lake as though this treasure was nothing. If this were true, you could just swim down and scoop up a lifetime of wealth. This first contact with the Muisca was game-changing. Finally, it seemed like there was proof that Gonzalo's path would lead him to El Dorado. The treasures of the Muisca convinced Gonzalo that El Dorado was nearby. 
This was also important for the Spanish, as they looted great quantities of the Muisca's golden artifacts and artworks. Gonzalo also discovered Lake Guatavita, one of the Muisca's sacred lakes. He hoped this might be the fabled lake that was said to surround El Dorado, but when he and his men searched the shores and surrounding wilderness, they found nothing. Still, they had hopes for what might hide in this deep water. Tales of the Muisca practice of throwing treasure into sacred lakes during ceremonies hinted at vast riches in the water's depths. But the lake was too deep for swimmers to reach the bottom, and the men could not build another dike with the technology they had on hand. Gonzalo de Quesada stayed in Colombia until 1538 and came no closer to finding El Dorado or any hidden gold. It seemed that his mission, like all those that had come before his, might end in failure. In 1540, Gonzalo's brother, Hernán Pérez de Quesada, led an expedition of his own into the Gianos Orientales, a tropical grassland east of the Andes. But like his brother Gonzalo, Hernán returned to Bogotá empty-handed. Fate, it seemed, did not smile on the Quesada brothers. But their efforts may have given hope to another pair of siblings. Remember Francisco Pizarro, the man who conquered the Inca? In 1540, his half-brother Gonzalo Pizarro became governor of Quito, a province in modern-day Ecuador. While governor, Gonzalo Pizarro heard rumors from the natives that there was a valley to the east with unimaginable riches. One thought immediately jumped into his mind. El Dorado. He gathered a small group of soldiers and took the risky journey inland. Gonzalo's mission was plagued by diseases, lack of food, and attacks by local tribes. After losing many of his men, Gonzalo turned back, but sent his lieutenant, Francisco de Oriana, onward. Oriana ultimately made it through to the Atlantic Ocean, and this expedition is credited as being the first European encounter with the Amazon River but El Dorado remained elusive. In 1545, Hernán Pérez de Quesada trekked to Lake Guatavita. Though this wasn't the location of El Dorado, he was convinced, as his brother had been, that there were riches below the surface. It took several months, but Hernán and his men managed to lower the water level by three meters. They did find gold, but not nearly enough to indicate that there was a whole city of gold nearby. The true depths of the lake continued to hide any real treasures safely out of reach. By the mid-16th century, the ancient South American civilizations had been mostly conquered or wiped out by European forces. This led to a problem. The Spanish colonies were housing hundreds of soldiers with seemingly nothing to do. So in 1560, Pedro de Ursua and Lope de Aguirre made a plan to distract these men and they used the legend of El Dorado to do it. To give these restless soldiers a mission, Ursua and Aguirre led 300 of them on an expedition down the Amazon River to find the fabled El Dorado. This pragmatic exercise ended in a terrible reckoning. After one year, Aguirre helped overthrow and kill Ursua, supposedly out of retaliation, because Ursua did not allow Aguirre's mistress to join the expedition. 
He seized control of the mission and promised his men that untold riches awaited them. The mutinied crew made their way down the riverways of the Bogota savanna, menacing and plundering native villages. In an act of rebellion against the Spanish crown, Aguirre appointed himself Prince of Peru and attacked anyone who challenged his rule. He was ultimately captured and executed. El Dorado remained no closer to being found. In 1580, Antonio de Sepulveda made a second attempt to drain Lake Guatavita by utilizing new dike technology. His crew was able to lower the water level by 20 meters. There, the crew found jewels, golden armor, and other trinkets. The Muisca had been dumping treasure into the lake, and the riches were almost as plentiful as the legend seemed to indicate. But the mission was cut short by tragedy. The dike system collapsed and killed many of the workers. The men did not have the materials to rebuild, and so the quest was abandoned. Starting in 1583, Gonzalo Jimenez de Casada's nephew, Antonio de Berrio, the governor of Trinidad, attempted three expeditions in search of El Dorado. During the third expedition in 1590, he and his men were captured by the man who was among the most famous to ever seek El Dorado. We're talking about Sir Walter Raleigh. Raleigh was an entrepreneur, an explorer, and the fickle favorite of Queen Elizabeth I. Early in his career, Raleigh was involved with multiple endeavors in the New World, including a plan to resettle English Catholics in North America. But during this time, none of his schemes were very big or very successful. Then, in 1583, his favor with Queen Elizabeth paid off, and she granted Raleigh a sweeping charter to colonize North America, giving him, quote, free liberty and license from time to time and at all times forever hereafter to discover, search, find out, and view such remote, heathen, and barbarous lands, countries, and territories, not actually possessed of any Christian prince nor inhabited by Christian people." End quote. Raleigh's broad charter from Elizabeth marked England's first real attempt to create a colony in the New World. During this time, Elizabeth was quite attached to Raleigh and didn't like for him to be gone for too long. So, though she had granted him permission for his expeditions, Raleigh himself wasn't allowed to go. He had to direct them from England, starting with the first one in 1584. On this trip, Raleigh's ships reached modern-day North Carolina, but did not set up any colonies. They did return with two Native Americans, named Mantio and Wanchis. Mantio and Wanchis ended up being a part of Raleigh's second expedition in 1585. Again, Raleigh himself was not allowed to join. This time, the expedition attempted to set up a colony, but this colony failed. The colonists abandoned the location and had to hitch a ride back to England with Sir Francis Drake. The third of Raleigh's expeditions resulted in the founding of the Roanoke Colony, which infamously disappeared from history sometime before 1590. But that's its own mystery for another day. After three failed expeditions and a failure to establish a profitable colony for his queen, favorite or not, 
Raleigh was at odds with Elizabeth. He didn't do himself any favors when he secretly married one of Elizabeth's ladies-in-waiting, Bess Throckmorton, without the Queen's permission or knowledge. The couple had accidentally gotten pregnant, so they didn't have much of a choice. When Elizabeth found out, she banished both Raleigh and Bess from her court. Elizabeth also stripped Raleigh of all his titles and estates. Raleigh was a proud man. He had worked hard to earn his place in England. He had secured wealth for England's coffers through his expeditions, as well as his privateering, and he had successfully defended England in sea battles against Ireland and Spain. Raleigh was desperate to restore himself, and he knew just what he could do to restore his place with Elizabeth. He had to find El Dorado. Unfortunately, his quest would only lead to failure and death. Coming up, we'll continue our story about Sir Walter Raleigh's continued fall from grace and cover the current theories as to where El Dorado actually is. Now back to the story. In 1595, Walter Raleigh set sail from England in search of the city of El Dorado as part of a desperate effort to restore his place of prominence at Elizabeth's court. His intention was to sail up the Orinoco River. But upon arriving at the inlet, his ships were too large to enter the river, so Raleigh took provisions and men up the Orinoco in three open boats. The expedition went deep up the river and into the mountains. After several weeks' journey, something amazing happened. They reached a place where every rock they pulled from the water was visibly laden with gems or precious metals. And it was here that the river brought them to a waterfall with a wondrous vista. They could go no further, but from their vantage, Raleigh and his men espied that the river continued on into a hidden valley out of sight. Raleigh was certain that this hidden valley contained the location of El Dorado. If he could get past the waterfall to navigate further he would finally find the legendary city. Raleigh wrote about the unspoiled potential of this land in his personal journals, and then later his book about his quest, The Discovery of the Large, Rich, and Beautiful Empire of Guiana. He asserted that more riches and beautiful cities could be plundered here than Cortez ever found among the Aztecs. But these stories were all Raleigh brought back. No gold, no treasure, because he could not get past the waterfall. This time... Raleigh did not give up. In 1596, he sent his lieutenant, Lawrence Kemys, back to further explore the Orinoco River and its surrounding regions. After all, Raleigh was certain they had gotten very close. Surely, Kemys could finally find El Dorado. During this 1596 expedition, Kemi's mapped the geography and the locations of native tribes along the Orinoco River, as well as noting the plant and animal life. He published his findings in his book, Relation of the Second Voyage to Guiana. In this work, Kemi's also noted that the natives traveled inland by canoe toward a large body of water. Kemi's was certain this body of water must be the lake where El Dorado was located but this inland waterway remained too far to reach. In 1603, Elizabeth died and her nephew, James I, ascended to the throne. 
James was not a fan of Raleigh, largely because of the rumors that surrounded his relationship with Elizabeth. By the end of the year, a Spanish plot to kill James was discovered, and Raleigh was implicated, despite a total lack of evidence. Raleigh was cleared of these charges, but still convicted of treason. While he may not have been part of the Spanish plot, at this time in England it was considered treason to even wish the death of your monarch. And Raleigh had been very vocal about his ill wishes for the new king. Luckily for him, Raleigh's death sentence was suspended. Unluckily for him, he was imprisoned in the Tower of London. And that's where he stayed for the next 13 years. As you could imagine, after 13 years, Raleigh was keen to get out of the Tower. So in 1616... Raleigh convinced King James that he could locate El Dorado and bring its treasures back to England if given the chance. Raleigh explained to James that his previous expedition, the one he wrote the book about, had shown him how to find this golden city. It was a Hail Mary, but it worked, at least in terms of getting Raleigh out. But there was one condition. To avoid another war with Spain, King James forbid Raleigh from causing trouble with Spain or its fleet. At the age of 63, Raleigh embarked on his last resort expedition to find El Dorado, bringing his old friend Lawrence Kemys as his captain. This expedition was a disaster. The crew wasn't able to restock on their journey inland and were starving and desperate by the time they passed Santo Tomé. Kemis sacked Santo Tomé and killed its governor, despite the king's ban on attacking Spain. It remains unclear if Raleigh was involved in this decision, but tragically, Sir Walter Raleigh's son was also killed in the ensuing battle. Upon Raleigh's return to England, Spain demanded retribution for what had happened in Santo Tomé. So James I unsuspended Raleigh's suspended death sentence from 13 years prior, and Raleigh was beheaded. Raleigh's death signified the end to concentrated efforts to find El Dorado. Over the next 300 years, people tried and failed to find clues to El Dorado's location by searching and draining Lake Guatavita. Colombia declared the lake a protected area in 1965, outlawing further attempts to search for any remaining hidden treasures. All continued attempts to locate El Dorado or the fabled lake it sits on have failed. And yet, people continued to search to this day, despite anti-looting laws in Colombia. After all, there are still areas of the Andes where we haven't been, where the mythical city and all of its treasures could be hidden. So where is El Dorado? Why couldn't the Europeans find it? Well, one theory is that it was long gone by the time they started looking. The Maya were one of the great civilizations of Mesoamerica, but their empire ended in 900 AD, a full 600 years before any European came to the continent. Similarly, it's possible that the empire that made the golden city of El Dorado rose and fell before a single conquistador set foot in the New World. The Maya had grand cities, pyramids, and hieroglyphic writing. It's likely conquistadors heard stories about the Mayan cities just like they heard them about El Dorado. Maybe they just didn't realize both were long gone. There is even evidence that the Spanish spent time around the Mayan ruins during the Aztec conquest, but they weren't terribly interested. 
If they found the ruins of El Dorado, would they feel any different? Or would they also ignore those relics, never realizing they had reached their goal? While it could theoretically be true El Dorado was gone by the 1500s and explorers were just confused or uninterested, that doesn't explain why we still can't find this location of the city. After all, we know where many of the Mayan ruins are. However, this theory is supported by the fact that even today, we are still finding new ruins of past civilizations within the Amazon jungle. As recently as 2018, archaeologists have uncovered the bare remnants of settlements that existed before the Spanish arrival in the late 1400s. Some of these settlements are believed to have held over a million people. Most traces of these civilizations were gone, reclaimed by the jungle long before the Europeans set foot on South American shores. The Amazon jungle remains the world's largest tropical rainforest, with a size of over 2 million square miles. There's likely many, many more ruins of past civilizations that we have yet to discover. Another major theory is that the Europeans did find El Dorado, just not in a literal way. Under this theory, El Dorado is not one specific city, and it never was. Instead, this may have been a misunderstanding between natives and Europeans due to cultural differences in how each viewed gold. The Europeans viewed gold as something permanent to be saved and hoarded to signify wealth, status, and power. Hence those kingdoms' fixations on crown jewels and the like for royalty. The Muisca, on the other hand, treated gold as a sacred object, but a temporary one. They fashioned sacred objects and votives to use in their ceremonies, and then in those ceremonies, discarded the artifacts within days or even hours of creating them. So when the Muisca and other indigenous tribes of the area talked about the gold of El Dorado, They could have been talking about the accumulation and spiritual effect of ceremonial gold used and discarded over centuries. But the Europeans only knew of gold as something to be collected, so they assumed the gold was all being accumulated physically at the same time in the same place. Between 1500 and 1650, Europe plundered 181 tons of gold and 16,000 tons of silver from the New World. They took sacred items, religious adornments, and royal treasures and melted them down. It was a massive amount of riches, and yet so many of these explorers remained obsessed with the idea of a golden city. Who's to say that this immense wealth stolen from Central and South America, not to mention the lost art, stolen history, and eradicated cultures, isn't itself the lost treasure of El Dorado. But while equating El Dorado to the vast riches stolen from the Americas has a nice ring to it, this theory feels a little more literary than literal to me. The third explanation for the disappearance of El Dorado is the most likely, or at least the most accepted in archeological communities. El Dorado was never a city of gold. It was a person of gold. Specifically, it was a king. El Dorado actually translates to the Golden One. According to Muisca legend, at the start of a king's reign, he would give an offering on a sacred lake. The lake that conquistadors were sure was the location of El Dorado, but was actually the location of where the king became the king, 
or the Eldorado. In this ceremony, the king would remove all of his clothes. Then he would cover his entire body in gold dust. After this, he would climb onto a raft. On the raft would be attendants, as well as four pots of burning incense. The raft would be heaped with gold, jewels, and precious metals, as much as they had, the sacred but temporary objects of the Muisca. The people would gather all around the lake. They would also wear their sacred gold objects and other finery. The king and his escorts would guide the raft and all its treasures to the center of the lake. There, the king decked in gold would throw those heaps of treasure into the deep, deep sacred lake, an offering to the gods. This offering signaled the beginning of the king's reign. This theory also involves a misunderstanding. The conquistadors heard about a golden city on a sacred lake. But what they were actually hearing about was a golden king and the location of his coronation ceremony, which is a sacred lake. There is evidence to back this up. In 1969, in a cave outside Bogota, three villagers found an ancient gold disc from the Muisca. It depicted exactly this ceremony, a golden man on a raft setting out onto a sacred lake. Whatever the truth, what we know for sure is that there have been countless expeditions through South America in search of the fabled golden city El Dorado but it has never been found. So how could that be? Did it never exist? It's difficult to say. One last thing to consider is the nature of the Amazon itself. When settlements fell or were abandoned, the jungle would reclaim the land at an alarming rate, even to the extent that all traces were completely wiped out. We can't say that it for sure never existed because there's a chance that it did and was just lost to time and nature. That's never the conclusion you want to reach, but people have been searching for El Dorado for over 500 years. Maybe it was just a myth after all. But there's always the possibility that it did exist in all the splendor and glory that the legends described. Until, of course, the city was lost to time. Over the course of the 16th century, explorers from Spain and England tore into the untouched landscape in South America, desperate to find a city so overwhelmingly wealthy that their suffering and toil would all be worth it. In pursuit of this fabled city, El Dorado, the Europeans directly and indirectly slaughtered thousands of Native Americans, sacking their cities and enslaving those who survived. El Dorado or no, this era was when Europe made its foothold in South America, establishing colonies that would remain under European control until the 19th century. In all that time, no man would ever lay eyes on El Dorado and as modern technology allows us to fill in the corners of the map more and more, it seems likely that no man ever will. Thanks again for tuning in to Gone. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. You can find more episodes of Gone, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Network. We'll see you next time. Just because it's gone 
doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Gone is written by Joseph Samuel Wright and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.